Hello and welcome to Tape Heads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Tape Heads is the podcast where we select a VHS tape from either my collection or Lindsay's collection. We watch it, then we talk about it. Lindsay and I are currently uh, enjoying a couple glasses of wine. I have a cat on my lap. It's a very cozy evening. Yeah, and you finally have your voice back. It was gone for a few days. Yeah, yeah. I have a legitimate excuse for this episode being late. (laughs) Right. I Hey, I, I got sick, <laughs> and I lost my voice. Um, it was really sad, though, because you couldn't even talk to me. Yeah. You yeah. had to tell me to stop talking to you because it hurt too much to respond. Yeah, it was, it was very sad, but not quite as sad as the plight of young Lane Meyer in today's film, Better Off Dead. Oh, whatever. He's, he's your usual put-upon teen. It's hard to sympathize with this mopey teen when he looks like John Cusack. <laughs> so the movie we're doing today is 1985's Better Off Dead, starring John Cusack and directed by Savage Steve Holland. He also wrote the script. And this is the prequel of sorts, not connected story-wise, but to uh, One Crazy Summer that we did. Yes, Better Off Dead came first. It came in 1985. It was the first uh, team-up of John Cusack and Savage Steve Holland, and they reunited for One Crazy Summer the very next year. Yeah, I, uh, this was better than One Crazy Summer. Oh, yeah. They're better- very different, and it's weird because they're both in that kind of bizarre, surrealist mode, but they're very, very different. Sort of understanding that this doesn't take place in our world. It's kind of a spoofy, crazy world with very eccentric characters and kind of anything goes and i think that of the two better off dead is the legitimate sort of cult classic and one crazy summer is sort of the curio it's kind of it's very similar in a lot of ways there's these animated sequences and john cusack thinks that he wants to get with the hot blonde but the person he really wants to be with is the soulful brunette i realize i don't know why i didn't think about this before when we watched one crazy summer but it's very monty python-esque pulling in the animated sequences yeah like the terry gilliam stuff yeah he's probably a fan So this movie takes place in the town of Greendale, supposedly in Northern California, although it's clearly Southern California. Does not look like Northern California. Although the uh, the scenes set in the snow for all the skiing sequences are, are filmed in Utah. John Cusack's character, Lane Meyer, is uh, obsessed with this girl, Beth, who he's been dating for about six months. Like, Can- it's creepy how <laughs> obsessed he is. This is not normal. Well, well what, what, how is it not normal? You see a view of his closet and attached to every hanger is a picture of her face. It's like he's got a bunch of, you know, paper doll versions of her hanging in his closet, and he's wallpapered his walls with copies of photos of her. It's not okay. (laughs) Yeah, I I was kidding. He is completely obsessed with her. To the point that uh, when she dumps him for Roy, the hot captain of the ski team, uh, he becomes suicidal. Because we all know teenagers just like, your world is that, right? Your world is just every, any kind of change like that completely destroys your life. But these aren't serious suicide attempts, and they're not even on the- Kind of (laughs) serious. I mean, he intends to set himself on fire and stuff. 
I mean, they're they're played for laughs, though. They're all horribly bungled and half-hearted. In one situation that's actually based on something that Savage Steve Holland really did. A lot of this, believe it or not, is, uh, I guess, semi-autobiographical. Lane uh, tries to hang himself in the garage and ends up completely botching it and gets caught by his parents. Mm-hmm. And in another scene, he tries to uh, asphyxiate himself with the car... I think the darkest one is when he tries to set himself on fire, but then he just gets shuffled over to the dinner table and eats dinner in gasoline-soaked rags. And then he also tries to jump off a bridge, because someone's got to jump off a bridge. And that bridge that he tries to jump off is a very, like, L.A. bridge. Uh, What does that mean? (laughs) I mean, like, it's one of those bridges that you see in, like, every L.A. movie. like A creek? Because yeah. they don't have any water there yeah. unless you get to the ocean. But uh, yeah, and that one's botched by him falling in a garbage truck. What is the line? <laughs> they threw away a perfectly good white boy. Yeah. <laughs> some, some black guys who happen to be overseeing all of this have that to say. But I think the real selling point of Better Off Dead, all these kind of running gags throughout the movie. My favorite running gag is the delivery boy, the newspaper delivery boy that has a uh, vendetta against the garage door he's busted all of the windows and so he's in this kind of battle with the dad but then he's also a sort of threatening mob member that's coming to collect yeah he the family owes him two dollars and we hear about it a lot I want my two dollars and I think that that's one of the things if if anyone knows a single line of dialogue from this movie it's that not not they throw away a perfectly good white boy. That, I think that should be what it's known <laughs> for, but I think I want my two dollars is the is the hit line. I mean, it's, it's really great because you've got this kid who's, what, maybe 11 years old or 12 years old who just seems so threatening. He's yeah. almost like a, he's almost like a slasher from a horror movie. Like you can't escape him. He'll keep coming back. Oh, definitely. And there's that scene when there's a whole mob of them out in the mist at night. <laughs> it's terrifying. At one point he equips his bike with skis so he can chase after John Cusack in the snow. But he's not the only eccentric kid in the movie. John Cusack has a uh, very interesting little brother who doesn't have a single line of dialogue in the movie, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, he, this kid orders these um, kits. He sends away for these kits that he builds a, uh, a laser beam. He learns how to pick up women and has a bunch of sexy women in his room that he's entertaining in a smoking jacket. Oh, yeah. Uh, he eventually builds a space shuttle that he launches through the roof of their house. Yeah, it's, it's those little sight gags that I love so much because you could watch the movie and just pay attention to the little brother badger and it's like he has his own movie going on he's sending away for all these things all of their cereal boxes are all cut up and to the point where they apparently in the 80s they didn't put plastic bags in the cereal boxes so all those cereals just pouring out it's hard to know because this exists in such a surreal world where there really are no rules it could just be that it's funnier if all the cereal pours out yeah maybe that's what it is maybe they just removed the bags because there's clearly no bag in those boxes so 
Maybe it's not a time capsule. Maybe they just did it for effect. He's clipping up the boxes not to get to toys in the bottom of the bag, but to get these little um, coupons that are on the cardboard box. He needs the coupon to be able to get these make-your-own-space shuttle that goes into actual space kits. And at one point, Lane is demeaning him for wasting all his time with this kid stuff, but little does he know that his brother is kind of most on top of things of anyone in the movie. Well, and it's definitely not kid stuff when you have, like, women in their 20s and 30s trying to sex you up. But that's not the only kooky member of the family. We also have his mom, Jenny, who (laughs) constantly is cooking these horrible meals she boils bacon and it comes out as this blue sort of you know over the top idea of it's like what a kid would think gross food looks like when she she's also she looks really young but we checked the actress's age and she was a reasonable age for being a mother of a teenager Mm. and stuff but she's very baby-faced and i feel like they cast her for that because she just seems like she doesn't know what's going on in life she boils bacon and it turns blue There's also the the old gag of like tentacles coming out of the pot and bits of jello moving across the table. There are these two Asian American brothers who have come over and one of them learned how to speak English from watching ESPN. Yeah, it's like a Howard Cassell voice. So he's he's essentially he only knows how to do sports announcer English, which is kind of like you have you always have that trope of Oh, those Asians can't speak English. But this is kind of an interesting twist. I love those guys. But in my mind, I think the meat of this movie is the relationship between Lane and the across the street uh, foreign exchange student, Monique. Yeah, this is also disturbing. The relationships in this movie are really weird. Like you've got Lane and his incredibly dysfunctional obsession with his girlfriend where he turns her into an object. Like she is an object to him that he has lost. And then you have the French girl who is treated as this kind of like a mail order bride by the mother that's that's her host mother because she's trying to set her up with her, uh, with the very unattractive and uh, not so nice son. Yeah, it's a very disturbing situation, and again, it's played for laughs because this is a a fairly light surreal '80s comedy. But it would be a horrifying situation. It's so bad in that house that Monique pretends that she can't speak English because she doesn't want to have to speak to them. Yeah. Like, it so disturbs her. And it, again, she's treated like almost like a male or, order bride. Like, the, the, the mom is very intense about Monique only being allowed to speak to the son and controlling her every single movement so she can't meet or connect with other people. So she's entirely dependent on her relationship with the son. And the son is just over the top awful. Like, not attractive. Walking around naked with a robe on. Socially awkward and very possessive of her. And it's just a bad situation. You take the comedy out and it's a horror movie. Oh yeah, a lot of these situations are. What did you think of the chemistry between uh, John Cusack and Monique? I thought they had pretty good chemistry. Her character was a little bit too much for me. You actually said that you think she's like a prototype for a manic pixie dream girl. Yeah, because she's so perfect. She comes in at just the right time. She knows how to do everything. And she's the inspiration for him to get over his prior relationship and 
uh, kind of move on with his life. Yeah, the other thing that's going on is he's trying to tackle this extremely dangerous ski slope called the K-12. But that's really kind of the same thing, isn't it? Because the the K-12 only comes up because of a challenge from the man that stole his ex-girlfriend. I mean, the whole time he's been trying to train with his friend. uh, His useless friend. (laughs) His useless friend. He's actually one of my favorite characters. And he's someone who comes back for uh, One Crazy Summer. Extreme drug addict like, uh, this is a guy that gets excited about seeing all the powder aka snow and tries to snort it yeah this is curtis armstrong who plays uh charles damar but the thing is he we never actually see him doing drugs because he says in a town like this he can't find real drugs so he uses like aerosol cans and he snorts jello and snow i was a little disappointed so initially they introduced this character who's wearing a top hat and then they show him again, and he's wearing, like, a Newsies sort of cap, like one of those old um, newsboy caps. And I thought that they were going to have a running joke with him wearing a different goofy hat in every scene, but then they didn't do that. So I thought I felt like that was definitely a missed opportunity. <laughs> going back to Monique, I definitely see what you mean. I mean, she's able to fix the Camaro. Uh, the car that he could never get fixed. Although, again, I think that we're dipping into surrealism with that, because not only does she fix up the car in an afternoon, this junker, but it also has like a fresh coat of paint and all these crazy things that they just wouldn't have had access to in the garage, you know? She's perfect. Although in a movie where a child builds a spaceship and at the end of the movie blows up his house and flies into space, I think this is the the least of its uh, poetic license. Yeah, and his his friend is a terrible ski coach, but then she turns out to be an absolute expert skier the perfect skier did you ever see the south park episode where they go to aspen i don't think so because i feel like a lot of cliches that are kind of spoofed in that are taken directly from better off dead like in that episode stan has to beat this killer slope like has to go up against this douchey guy Again, there's like a skiing montage where he gets good really fast. You don't think that there was a 80s ski movie that happened before this that was took itself more seriously that this is also spoofing, though? I, well, you know, there were a glut of ski movies <laughs> in the 80s, uh, not least of all Ski School and Ski School 2, starring friend of the show, Dean Cameron. <laughs> Can you really call him a friend of the show? We met him. Well, you did take a lovely picture with him. Yeah, I think you had a really good point when you said that this was... It's not just a spoof of teen movies, it's a spoof of, like, actual... The teenage experience. Yeah, because, I mean, your teen years are just so surreal. Everything is so over-the-top dramatic. If you get dumped or something, it's the end of the world, and everything seems crazy, and no one seems to understand you, and this is just that taken to the nth degree. I think that's kind of why so many people love it. Although one person that didn't love it was John Cusack himself, who, according to Savage Steve Holland, and this is, it's kind of awkward because he was in a two-picture deal with Savage Steve Holland. He was contractually obligated to do One Crazy Summer. And this is all alleged. I, I guess there's no real way of knowing this, but I don't see why Savage Steve Holland would make this up. But apparently John Cusack stormed out 20 minutes in and said that it was the worst thing he had ever seen and he'll never trust him again. I just don't buy that he didn't 
understand it was a surreal movie. He had to have read the script. He was there when they were filming some of this crazy stuff. Like, there's no way he had no inkling of how weird this movie was. Although I also read that in a Reddit Ask Me Anything, John Cusack was actually asked directly if he really hated Better Off Dead. And what he says in hindsight is that, uh, no, he just thought it could have been better, but he sort of thinks that of all his films and that he's glad that people still love it. But that might be sort of uh, retroactive. I mean, I can sort of sympathize with this situation because he was super young when he did this. He was 19. I guess he could have thought that it was going to stop his career dead in its tracks. I mean, I think that's exactly what he thought. I mean, and clearly it didn't. He went on to do a lot of great stuff. But at the time, I can see where a young, immature actor would think that this would just be a devastating blow. One thing thinking about his relationship, like they, they also don't explain his love for his girlfriend to us. They give us flashbacks, but I just still don't, I don't know. I just don't understand her as a character, feel anything toward her whatsoever. So I kind of wonder at the point of some of those flashbacks, like what were they even doing? They're, I think that they were doing just that, like trying to give you some idea of their relationship before the breakup. And Also, like everything else, I feel like it's just an excuse to do some gags. Like, I remember in that one sequence in his geometry class with the super popular geometry teacher. Yeah, where everyone's excited about geometry and everyone did their homework and can't wait to present on it, which happened in no class ever. Yeah. And uh, that's the actor from Ghost. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. The, plays the, the geometry teacher. Yeah, the guy in Ghost that is on the uh, in the New York subway. Yeah. Unfortunately, he's passed on. As have many of the people in the movies we watch for the show. Sadly, Vincent Chiavelli is the actor's name. But anyway, this flashback sequence. Uh, I mean, there's two flashback sequences to their relationship, and they're. I think they're both kind of mostly there for gags. I mean, one of them is. He goes long for a football and sees the cute girl and ends up stepping into someone's picnic. Yeah. And then the other one is where they're necking in the car and someone makes off with all of his tires. And everything about her is her looks. Like, there's really nothing where you learn about her personality much at all. She's very superficial on the surface. And even, like, every all these people... Mostly adults keep coming up to John Cusack's character, Lane, asking if they can go date his now ex-girlfriend, including the geometry teacher. Yeah. And the mailman, Barney Rubble, on TV yeah. asks. There's a, there's a sequence where Barney from the Flintstones is talking to John Cusack and asking about the girlfriend and if she's available. I can definitely see how this would be relatable for a lot of people. And if anything, like the exaggerated surreal quality to it just makes it more relatable because it's such a sort of live action cartoon. Yeah, that is a good way to describe it. Live action cartoon. Because everything is so absurd. It's so it's really extreme. And of course, this movie has a great 80s soundtrack. There's a classic sequence uh, where he's working at a burger joint and... The burgers come alive in a claymation sequence, and you get some Van Halen. Oh, Muddy Waters is in there. I think there's a lot of reasons that this is one that I revisit a lot more than One Crazy Summer. 
One of the reasons is the character of Monique is just so much more interesting as not just as a love interest, but as a character than the Demi Moore character in One Crazy Summer. Yeah, they definitely put more into her character, definitely more thought to make her a bit more complex than Demi Moore. You know, the more I think about it, the more I really notice a drop off in quality with John Cusack's performance. I mean, in in part because he just really didn't want to be there in One Crazy Summer, whereas this yeah whereas this yeah he's just he's raring to go in this one i mean this is some some vintage cusack right here and he's so he's got that smooth baby soft skin (laughs) oh yeah was it weird to uh see one crazy summer first you were sort of the guinea pig on this i mean i think it was kind of better to see one crazy summer first because it's not as good (laughs) so I, i wasn't able I, I wasn't able to feel the disappointment that I think I would have felt if I saw it after seeing this. Because this is definitely better. Like, this movie has its flaws, but it's definitely much better than One Crazy Summer. Another similarity is that there's a lot of animated sequences. I mean, I think they push that even harder in One Crazy Summer. I think they might even go a little overboard with it, but that's in part because John Cusack's character is an actual cartoonist. Although they have him drawing some of the stuff in this too, they have his character. That's true. I feel like it. it's a little more pronounced in One Crazy Summer. I could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, one last difference between the two that I really noticed was that this film was a lot simpler, which I think helped. One Crazy Summer just had too much going on and too many characters. It was just kind of hard to follow and hard to stay involved. And I think this one being stripped down a little bit more helped. I totally agree. And it's funny because One Crazy Summer, for whatever reason, whenever I watch it, I feel like I start forgetting things about it the moment that I stop watching it. I remember that being a really hard episode for us to record just because I was trying to keep everything straight. And I think it's just because there's a ton of characters and not all of them really serve a purpose. And also Bobcat Goldthwaite, it's very heavy on him, probably because John Cusack just wasn't as into it that time. Yeah. Whereas this is just super memorable for me, and it's one that I feel like revisiting again and again. One thing that I kept thinking while we were watching this is when they kept referring to Lane, all I could think of was Lane from Gilmore Girls. (laughs) (laughs) Which is back. Which is back. Starring Ray Wise. No, not really. <laughs> he is in it, though. Yeah, he is in it. As Rory. Yeah, Ray Wise as Rory. <laughs> they recast. They uh, totally recast. <laughs> Rory's now an old what man. What if they did that? What if just without comment, they said, oh, we got the whole cast back, except we had to recast Rory as Ray Wise. And so you've got this old, like older man talking to uh, Lorelai, saying, hey, mom, how's it going? That'd be great. All their witty banter suddenly takes an odd turn. One last little tidbit, and I didn't even notice this until I uh, looked it up, but uh, Amanda Weiss, who plays Beth, uh, I already did recognize her from the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, she's one. Of, she's the very first Freddy Krueger victim in that movie. There's a scene in the cafeteria where she's being followed by a guy who's wearing a Freddy Krueger sweater, and that was done entirely intentionally, like a red and green striped sweater. Uh, all right, Sean, it might be that time. Buy it, rent it, or tape over it. This is a buy it. It's a very silly, very light movie, but it's just kind of like comfort food to me. You know, it's just something that I could turn on whenever 
Obviously, I'm a big John Cusack fan, and I'd say this is in probably my top five or so of his. So yeah, if you like fun, crazy comedies with a lot of surreal stuff happening and a lot of zany side characters and one-liners, then uh, I think this is the one for you. Lindsay? I think I'm on Rent It. It was worth seeing. I had fun watching it. I don't know how many... I, I don't know when I would return to it. Maybe after we're done recording, we can throw it on. Yeah, watch it for a third time. That yeah. sounds good. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's kind of fun. You know, it's got... It's quirky and surprisingly dark. So, not bad. Not bad. All right. So, buy it from me. I rent it from Lindsay. By the way, there were no ads on this tape, and I was so disappointed. Well, I mean, were there any ads on One Crazy Summer? No, but... <laughs> Most of this the movies really, picked don't have ads. I know, but this is a PG movie, and I sort of felt like it would be chock full of period ads. It's This is probably one of the oldest tapes we've had on the show. It's a, it's a first edition from Key Video, and it is wow. it is really washed out the uh, front of this tape. I have a feeling it was like a rental store copy. But alas, no trailers at the beginning. Lindsay, we're switching over to your VHS collection for the next episode. What are you dusting off for us? We will watch Jim Carrey's The Mask. Oh. The movie that launched Cameron Diaz's career, probably. <laughs> I was such a Jim Carrey fanatic at that time. Although I think we all were yeah, during you, the 90s. Sean actually has a framed picture from Jim Carrey that's signed. Well, I wrote him a fan letter and he responded. And if you want to hear that story, you'll have to tune in next time for The Mask. <laughs> I'd like to thank Will Price for use of his song Mandatory Groove. You can find more of Will's music at soundcloud.com slash gargantulon. You can learn more about us and our podcast at tapeheadspodcast.com. You can also email us at tapeheadspodcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Please rate and review on iTunes. That's it for Tapeheads. I'm Sean. And I'm Lindsay. Until next time. <laughs>